Hey everyone, welcome to Speculative Work. I'm James Aaron. This is my science fiction author's diary where I share what I've been thinking about for the past week, things I've learned, and mistakes I've made, so hopefully you don't make them too. Uh, this is episode 20, which is exciting. Did not quite know if I would make it this far, and I have not been as consistent as I would like, but I have already made it farther than the average podcast does these days, so that's good. <laughs> I've learned some things along the way and definitely have some ideas of more things I would like to do, like interviews and, uh, and things like that. I like to broaden the scope of the podcast, but also not lose sight of the fact that this is a diary. And I think when I try and focus on doing other things, um, you know, advice and stuff like that, it sometimes creates resistance and makes it so that uh, I feel like I have to prepare a lot more than what was basically the original idea for the podcast, which is just sharing what I did in the past week and what I've enjoyed most about other people's podcasts, you know, other writers that are just trying to make it, you know, I think that's pretty valuable to hear what people are going through. So anyway, thank you for listening. I really appreciate everybody who has um, stuck it out with me and the numbers have been steadily growing. So that's, that's really cool. Okay, so updates from last last time I talked. The last episode was, you know, mainly focused on the potential business debt that I owed to my previous distillery business. And if you haven't listened to that episode, basically I got a collections notice from a company for $22,000. And in the, you know, I asked them to verify that debt in the materials that they sent, which it turns out were not actually sent directly to me. They were sent to the current owners of the LLC it outlined that the business, which I'm no longer part of, owes uh, $92,000 in excise tax. And the way liquor works, when you, uh, this all goes back to prohibition, as soon as you create alcohol and you move it from what's called a bonded area, you owe the government excise tax. And so when you have a bonded area, you basically have an insurance policy on that bonded area to cover the excise tax. And back in 2010, I had signed a document ensuring that we had at least $16,000 in, you know, insurance that would cover the bond on the alcohol. And that statement still existed. And so basically there was no getting out of that. <laughs> um, what I, and you know, it's funny when, when any anytime there's a debt, they're going to tack fees and things on that. So that 16,000 became 22,000, but then it got sold to a collections company, which was a law firm, which was kind of the thing that scared me right off the bat, because, you know, typically if you're dealing with collectors, there are several different collections companies, and there are so many good resources online that you can check out. If you, you know, if you find somebody sends you a collections notice, there are a bunch of different forums online, Credit Info Center, just, just Google collections and people, everything is is there that you might need from the validation letter that you need to send to even if you find yourself going to court, there, there are people out there that can help. But, you know, it's not typically like a law firm right off the bat. So that, that kind of worried me. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Well, they made an offer, which was much lower than what I expected. And so I, I ended up, I did talk to a lawyer. I went to talk to a business lawyer and learned a number of things about when I closed out the business, some steps I should have taken. I really should have talked to the lawyer back then and I thought I had everything covered and I, I didn't. And this was one oversight of something that um, I had carried multiple kinds of bond insurance. And so when I stopped 
carrying that coverage, I thought I was good, and it turns out I was not. So all in all, this is gonna cost me, I have a $22,000 debt, I'm gonna pay 7,620 as the settlement, and then I paid like 135, I think, to talk to the lawyer. So that, you know, I'll get out of this for under 8,000. And that seems like a lot of money, but I've been paying this stuff off since 2013, and all said and done, it's been you know, close to $40,000. So the good news is that I'm in a place where I had been paying off all of my debts. And so it sucks. <laughs> it's certainly not something I'm excited about, but it's also like not the end of the world. And it's not the way I felt in 2013 when I realized in the midst of this business that I could not pay my bills anymore. And I was worried about paying rent on both, you know, the business's location and, and like rent on my place to live. And so things are much better now. You know, I bought a house, like things are much better. And so I, the good news is that I feel like I'm probably finally completely out from under this business. But again, it's like a reaffirmation of kind of how clean the writing business can be, especially indie publishing. Because I was thinking about this, you know, like, okay, well, I wish I had talked to a lawyer earlier. And as a writer, there are plenty of times when you could talk to a lawyer, but there are also resources out there. So like if you're a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America, they have a legal group that you can have review contracts for you, and they'll do that for uh, free of charge if you're a member. And that's a huge resource. I mean, just to have this lawyer, you know, read these letters I'd gotten and look at the documents I'd prepared for a half hour was 135 bucks. So having someone who, you know, or a group of folks who can look at a contract and, and give you advice on how to proceed, which is a huge, you know, weight off your mind, is a really good thing. And then, then at least you would know do I need to go and contract a lawyer if it's something to do with rights or things of that nature? The other resource that I would highly recommend is uh, Chris and Catherine Rush's website, Chris Writes. That's Chris with a K, K-R-I-S-W-R-I-T-E-S. And she really has been doing a deep dive into rights and how to read a contract and what kind of rights publishers are now expanding contracts to take control of. So. Whereas you might have, you know, if you signed with an American publisher, you might have, you know, you definitely would probably have to give them ebook rights and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you usually had, you usually retained world rights. Well, now, you know, publishers are hanging on to those rights. They're also hanging on to different media formats and things of that nature. And publishing is changing so fast that you never quite know how your work could potentially be licensed. And so you want to hang on to those rights if you can. So this this whole experience has just been a, a reminder that yeah, 135 bucks is it's a lot of money, but it's also you know could save you thousands of dollars down the road. And I wish somebody had really shaken me, you know, six years ago and made me talk to a lawyer, <laughs> even though it seemed like those were the last dollars I had. It potentially could be saving me seven thousand dollars down the road, or close to eight thousand dollars. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling better about that. I'm glad that I talked to people about it. And, um, again, I, I can't emphasize enough that if you're experiencing some kind of something that seems overwhelming, uh, talk, talk to people about it. And I want to ch talk about that a little bit more uh, here in a second. But one thing that's also brought up, and I wish I had, I had thought more about this at back at the time, but I was in a business partnership and 
I don't think that I would ever enter into a, a business partnership again because the thing about a partnership is the other the other party can always leave and you can create legal frameworks to protect yourself against that. But if you and your partner stop getting along, which is what happened in my case, or you find yourself doing parts of the business you never wanted to do, which is also my situation, you don't have a lot of recourse unless you dissolve the company and that's gonna cost you money. But that kind of situation versus co-writing, co-writing can also get messy because you've entered into a partnership. And so you wanna make sure that that's clearly defined as far as whose roles and what, how the work's gonna be produced and, and don't be afraid to walk away from something that doesn't feel right because you will enter into conflict in some way with the person you're working with. And so I think being upfront about that at the beginning is going to save you a lot of heartache down the road. I wouldn't say do it, dig into it so much that you kill a project because that's the other the thing I've been thinking about is like, and I thought about this also when I started writing an Aeon 14 based on my experience, like, okay, what if this goes bad? Like, what if I even lose the rights to everything that I've, that I've written? Well, I can always write more, you know, I, I have gained from this experience uh, through the knowledge I've learned, through the relationships I've made, um, building up my own audience. And, and so not that I ever expect this kind of thing to happen, but I still gained in the process. And so if I was to lose the rights to what I've written, I can turn around and write more stuff. And a story that, and that's the thing that gets tricky whenever money is involved, you know, and there's, you could be incredibly bitter and create, you know, legal liability if someone uh, takes your intellectual property, but you kind of have to be willing to accept that risk if you're going to enter into an agreement with someone to create a thing together, you know, that's, that's always possible. And if you're not thinking of a business relationship as a relationship, it is. And people that aren't willing to kind of talk about things in, in an adult way probably isn't somebody that you want to be working with. And I'd say the, the main upside with writing is just that hopefully you won't be paying off credit card debt for, you know, six years of your life. <laughs> um, although I don't know. I mean, there are plenty of ways that folks could jump into something and spend a lot of money. And then, you know, that's the way business debt works. Like everybody, you often hear people say like, well, we'll just use other people's money or it's, biz it's business. You have the LLC, it protects you. Well, ultimately everything is often, you know, personally, you know, signed for in some way. Like if you get a business loan, they want you to secure that with like a second mortgage or, you know, I was able to get a small business development loan and, and I went through a whole process to do that, but I was still personally liable for that loan. Um, same thing with this insurance policy is that ultimately I, me and my partner were, were personally liable for it and that debt doesn't go away. And so if you're, you know, entering into a contract with someone like say to do publishing or something and you're using a credit card, while a credit card can be discharged in bankruptcy, you're still going to be on the hook for that in some way. Like it's going to cause pain. So <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that exactly, but I just think if it's important to think about and, but also know that it's not the end of the world if things go sour. I mean, here's the thing about it too. Like owing money is, I, I can make more money. And I realize that not everybody is fortunate to be that way, but I can write more, I can make more money. And if things really go bad, you know, this was part of the conversation I had with my wife. Like when I was thinking through all this, like I talked about in the last episode, if bankruptcy was on the table, like, well, what happens with the important things in my life? Do they really change that much? Like, no, they don't. Just my credit score gets tanked. <laughs> and and there, are ways, there are ways around that. And also it's not for the rest of your life, you know. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Uh, things happen. Business happens. Business is 
so many, you know, business depends on so many things and you can make assumptions and they just don't play out and you lose money and people lose money all the time in business. Uh, I think we just oftentimes don't realize how much for all the winners, people aren't seeing the losers because nobody wants to hear that story. And there are plenty of people out there that who, who have lost in business, you know, and they, they keep on living. So, but anyway, I, I am glad to report that things seem to be okay. So I will get back to the regular programming after this episode. Uh, other things that happened. So I had the podcast interview with Keystroke Medium Writer's Journey. And that was, that was a lot of fun. Like I think with any interview, I felt like I was probably talking too fast and not composing my thoughts properly. But the thing I really like about their format is that there's, there's a chat going on. You know, we did it as a Google Hangout. So it's on a YouTube as a YouTube live event. There's chat happening. You can respond to the questions in the chat. And also just the format is really kind of free flowing and a conversation. And so it's just not, there's not a lot of pressure. So I think if you have the opportunity to be in a podcast like this, it's really kind of the best of all worlds. And it's kind of a living thing. Like the thing that I really enjoy about it is I could see even the topic that we talked about, like, which was uh, family life or work, work life balance, you know, coming back to this in a year and talking about things that have changed or lessons learned or things like that. You know, it's, it's a kind of a living, a living document. So, so that was fun. And then today, Lauren Moore and, and Kayleen Williams did a interview with Chris Hopper, who is an author that uh, has been writing with Jeff Cheney, J.N. Cheney, and also has his own series of fantasy novels and has had a pretty interesting career, but from ministry to owning some franchises, being a session musician, making, playing music and things like that. And the episode was talking about uh, midlife crisis. And it's interesting when, as soon as you say the words midlife crisis, like there's kind of a kind of a joke there, right? Like people, you know, immediately think of like buying the Ferrari or running off with a younger, you know, spouse of some kind, or it's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous. But one of the things that I really appreciated about the conversation and also the people that were participating is there was a level of seriousness in the topic that I think really paid uh, attention to the fact that like it, it is a thing and it is people blow up their lives or or people go through really difficult times and find themselves alone or find themselves losing their major relationships and it it leads to a whole lot of pain for a lot of people and a lot of it comes from you know the reason you know it's midlife crisis is you reach a point in your life where you realize that you have less time left than you you know have behind you and have you made the decisions that you wish you had made, right? Are you living the life that you wish you could live? And so one of the things Chris talked about was that he he was actually going in the midst of a bankruptcy from the franchise, one of the franchises. He didn't really get into details, but I was so appreciative of the fact that he was willing to admit that because I think there's a lot of shame around things, you know, a thing like bankruptcy or even bankruptcy related to starting a business because that doesn't fit the narrative, right, of starting a business and being wildly successful and and making a ton of money. Well, it doesn't work out like that for everybody. <laughs> and I think it's really difficult to talk about it. And it's just like like writing and you could write seven books and they don't hit and then it's the eighth book, right? And so are you a real writer if your books aren't selling or are you a writer because you sit down and write? And I would say you're a writer because you sit down and write. Like it is the act of writing that makes you a writer. 
selling work is totally is a different thing. You know, writing writing work that is designed to sell is a different skill. And we all get there in time as we learn more about the market and we assess what our goals are and things like that. But if you're not willing to be honest about what you want and what you're experiencing, then you're you're going to run into some kind of crisis. And and I think that people hurt I kind of talked about this in some of the uh, I think a previous episode is that when people aren't honest about things in their lives, I think that's when they hurt other people, they hurt their spouses, their children, they lash out. And a lot of it's it's just out of fear, you know, fear of shame, fear of being seen as a failure. And people don't people don't want that. But if you have if if it's possible for you to share something about yourself like like hey, I'm going through this and you have family that loves and supports you or a community that loves and supports you, and I've seen those communities. I think those communities are out there, even if you might feel alone right now as a writer who's working by yourself. I think those communities are, you know, I hate to say it, they're on Facebook. <laughs> but there are people out there that are going through the same thing or people are willing to listen. So you can at least say say the words. And when you say the words, like, I'm going through bankruptcy or I had to stop, I had to close my business or I had to go talk to a bankruptcy lawyer. Like I admit, I felt shame in doing that. But I had kind of mentally prepared myself, even in telling my wife that, hey, this thing still is not done. There is still another debt I have to pay because we've been through it. And I'm so grateful that she is standing there with me and we can go through it together as opposed to me trying to, you know, hide away in my cave and solve these things by myself. And so it it was a really valuable episode of of Keystroke Medium. And I would recommend that you can find it on YouTube if you just uh, search Keystroke Medium um, or I think probably Chris Hopper, midlife crisis, that kind of thing. Like we don't want to make that a search term for the poor guy, but I would highly recommend anyone listen to it. Um, and I think even if, you know, I'm 44, I've kind of, this has been the arc of my life, you know, like I, between being in the army and leaving the army and feeling, uh, at the time when I left the army that I had failed in certain ways and then starting the business felt like I was finally going to succeed at something. And then when that didn't work out, like those were, those were crises, you know, and I, I look back and I realize I'm a completely different person than I am now, but I also recognize the importance in talking about it, which is not something I would have done when I left the army. Like I, when I was in the army as an army officer, I very much felt that I could not talk about things that might make me look weak or, and it, it's stupid. Cause I wouldn't really even say the army pushes that on people, but that's something I felt that like appearance was very important. And that created a lot of stress in my uh, my relationships at the time. And now I've just come to realize that, that hey, that's life. You know, and sometimes even great people, life, life craps on you. And it's not about what happens. It's what you do as you work through it, right? And, and as a writer, we have, as writers, we have this great opportunity to take these difficult things and turn them into characters and turn them into stories that entertain and, and teach other people. So... Um, so I think that's a pretty cool thing, you know, that you can take from what you're, these hard things you're going through. But I would highly recommend uh, folks listen to that that episode. Yeah, I, I can't recommend that enough. I, I hate to be on these heavy topics all the time, but it's just been what's been possessing my, my mind for the past two weeks. So let's move on to some lighter things. <laughs> what have I been reading? So there was a sale on Audible on a bunch of Ian Fleming, and so I bought... Uh, from Russia with Love and Casino Real, which is, you know, the Bond books have been on my to-be-read list for for a long time. I just had never gotten around to it. And I, I'd always known that the Bond books are very different than the movies. And and I'd heard that they're, 
they're good. You know, everybody talks about them being of a time and yeah, they're sexist and they're, they're pretty bad. Like the way Bond views women is it, it truly is like, like he hates women. Like, and it's really not even explained why exactly as if that's some kind of pervasive just thing that he kind of deals in. But, but from Russia with, so the interesting thing about these, you know, that, that stuff aside, um, and I'm not going to try and defend that by any, by any means, but I think there are interesting things in these books that still make them somewhat worthwhile if not just as if you're looking for an example from the 60s of you know something that's going to piss people off these books will do that but from Russia with Love so that one actually is really interesting I think from a to study this as a writer or as a character study because you don't actually meet Bond until halfway through the book you spend the first part of that book actually with the antagonists uh, the Soviets as they develop their plan against Bond. And I think, you know, this that kind of idea has become a trope because you see it in other stories where, you you know, it's basically like the get to know the bad guy episode. But, you know, the nostalgia for the Soviet Union is really high right now. Uh, it's fascinating. I've I found myself watching YouTube channels of, you know, folks that are traveling in the former Soviet Union right now. And then, of course, Stranger Things 3 with the Soviets... It's like I didn't even realize I kind of had this nostalgia and then it pops up, <laughs> you know. But it is still interesting, I think, to read a perspective from inside the Soviet Union. And this is a perspective from like kind of the height of the Soviet Union, like 1969. Stalin has been dead for like five years, I think. And But it's still very much, while they believe in workers' rights and all that kind of that good stuff, there's also very much a... And you don't know if Fleming, like Fleming, he does seem sympathetic towards them. I think I would say that he's equally critical of both sides. In fact, there's a great scene where these generals are sitting around kind of evaluating the intelligence agencies of each uh, of kind of the major powers. And so between the Americans who, you know, we think we can throw money at everything and the British who do things out of a sense of duty, but don't actually take care of any of their people to the Soviets who... I mean, one thing they said that I thought was really interesting was the British and the Americans don't believe in heroes. To them, a hero is a football player, whereas the Soviets actually believe in heroes. And so they would elevate a, a super spy and give them all kinds of perks and their family is recognized and all these great things because they're a hero for the state. And so they have this sort of idealism that the British and American characters are not portrayed as having. And that's an interesting perspective. But then there's also... Uh, another character who's going to be the love interest with Bond, who there is a scene where she very readily has to accept that she's giving up her body to the state because while she works for Schmiersch, which is the anti-spy agency, you know, kind of like our CIA, she, that's just her job, but then she's basically called up for this special assignment and it's, you know, she has to accept the fact that she's basically prostituting herself for the state. And it's, it's interesting, you know, I mean, it's, they're extremes, but they're also, it's just a really was kind of fascinating with all the various rhetoric that's flying around now to read some stuff from that time period. And Fleming, one thing about him was that he very much operated in this, this world. And so I can imagine him hearing, you know, Soviets having actually expressed these kinds of ideas, but, but who knows? I mean, sometimes I think you have to take it with a grain of salt, but it still was very interesting. Um, but they, so they basically, you meet the, the big bad guy who's a sociopath and then who defected from, uh, the UK over to the Soviet Union and 
And so you kind of get a little bit of how the West feels about the East in certain ways that it's kind of that also this, you know, idolization of authoritarians that we sort of see now as well. Like this character definitely feels that the Soviets get things done and they don't mind killing people and, you know, these stereotypes we hear about the Soviet Union. Um, so that stuff was all really interesting. But they, they, build up their, they build up their plan and then basically spring it on Bond. And then the rest of the book is, well, there's kind of a midpoint of some stuff with Bond in Turkey that kind of, I think, is there just to show Bond as a character. There's like a naked girl fight, which was like, what? <laughs> um, just seemed to be inserted for titillation. You know, not a lot comes out of that. And then we get Bond on the Orient Express where he meets the love interest that's going to, you know, supposedly trick him into uh, so the Soviets can murder him. So all this stuff is building up to a him meeting the love interest and it really got me thinking about like okay so we talk a lot about the character agency and does your character seem stupid or not like do they make decisions that make sense to you and everybody everybody's been saying this whole time that bond is a womanizer but he hasn't kind of been that hasn't been his mental space like he actually has just been thinking about one woman that i guess was in the previous book that i hadn't read and while he's assessing women and like you know deciding if they're beautiful or not he's not necessarily approaching things as like the free love uh you know pierce brosnan kind of bond or or sean connery so when he meets the woman who's supposed to you know seduce him she basically just appears in his bed he comes back to his hotel room she's in his bed wearing a ribbon around her neck and it's like a package you know a present wrapped up for him and he just jumps into bed with her and it's like what <laughs> and then basically everything plays out where he you know he gets blackmailed the way that uh you would expect them to blackmail him and while he does stupid things for sex, it's kind of like, well, I thought he was a smart agent who has said, you know, what what Fleming has been setting up is that every time Bond sees a situation, he assesses all of it. And that's really interesting, I think, from a character perspective where the character both assesses a scene, like everything that they see, and then they think through how they're going to respond. And so the reader is getting both information about like setting, you know, how the character feels about the setting, which creates mood. And then by giving the character's plan, now we've set up expectations for the reader about how it's going to play out, right? Which creates tension. But that doesn't happen with the love interest. Um, Bond just jumps into bed with her, falls in love with her. She wants to defect. And now I'm going to get her, you know, we're going to get her on a train and get her out of the Eastern Bloc. So, oh, you know, okay. <laughs> it just wasn't. It got me thinking about something you hear a lot in romance where you have to earn the sex scene. You know, you have to earn the love interest, the love affair. And you got to do that with scenes of, you know, the man and the woman like creating tension, you know, push, pull, try, fail, all that good stuff so that you create tension in the reader so that when they do jump into bed, you're like, yeah, I want them to get it on, you know, not just, oh, there's a person in my bed. Like the main thing I was thinking about was I dated a woman once that, uh, for, for whatever reason, like, she she had bad breath. <laughs> it um, was really something that, like, it just wasn't going to work out. Like, we didn't have that pheromone thing, right? And it got me this whole time, like, when the Soviets are coming up with their plan. And it was it felt to me almost like, a, like an online date where, okay, we've got this woman already. We've got everything good to go. She's looked at pictures of Bond. She thinks that he's, you know... Like, he's handsome, and then we get him in the bed together, and what if they were both just like, nah, nope, not feeling it. <laughs> this was not a coffee date, <laughs> you know? So, the, 
it definitely like that felt like a, t- a thing of the 60s you know where someone who hadn't been through online dating <laughs> would come up with this uh this idea this plot idea so then we get through all that and we get the bad guy that we set up as a really interesting bad guy and the battle to me felt really like it takes place in inside a passenger car on a train it's really like physically constrained there's not a lot of room for them to do anything there isn't while there is a little bit of a trifle cycle it just wasn't very satisfying for me and then ultimately bond wins and while they're with that guy and then while he ultimately he has a follow-on fight with a person you don't quite expect to for him to fight and it, it ends unexpectedly the fight that I was promised, which was with the big bad guy that the story even started with, that was really unsatisfying to me. And in reading about, you know, of course, by reading this book, I, I was kind of going down the rabbit hole and reading a bunch of other stuff about uh, Ian Fleming. And he was very much praised for, you know, once a year he would write this one kind of slim book, you know, and it'd be a huge success and, and that was it. And I'd, yeah, I think this book was maybe 200 pages. Like it was uh, it was an eight-hour audible listen but it it just felt like in so many places it really could have been fleshed out and at least for me it would have been more satisfying so yeah it was a it was an interesting read from that perspective and it's interesting to read like there were things that i found very interesting about the books like i said this descriptions of the soviets uh descriptions of the eastern Bloc. they spent time in turkey and that was all really interesting one thing i noticed that fleming does a lot of is will pull the description inside bond's body in fact, even in Casino Real, there's a, a scene at the beginning where he leaves the casino and every description of the scene around him is from inside his body. Like the way the, the air smells, the temperature of the air on his skin, uh, the feeling of the gravel through his thin shoes. Like, so you're really grounded inside Bond as he's experiencing the world. And then uh, the other thing, so Bond loves breakfast and he spends a lot of time describing breakfast food that he eats in different uh, parts of the world. <laughs> But that was also um, really kind of fascinating to, you know, read those descriptions. I didn't spend a lot of time on the martinis, you know. I mean, there are different scenes where Bond will have a drink while he's doing something. And that's just, you know, more normal, I guess. But didn't spend a lot of time describing the drinks or, or things like that. And then also, like, the administrative functions, MI6 or MI5, I can't remember which one it's supposed to be. But there are a lot of scenes with M, you know, Bond's supervisor, that kind of goes into just the way things work, you know, as far as a, a plan being developed by an underling, M reads it and reviews it, he's thinking about it, uh, he asks questions, and it's so different than the way we do things these days. And the whole time I'm reading it, I'm just thinking about like, what if this was actually like he received an email, he's got to scan a PDF, you know, he gets a shitty PowerPoint presentation that breaks down how they're going to approach this situation. <laughs> he's, he's got to like read an Excel doc of some bad guy's, you know, financial information. He doesn't actually have any administrative help to sort through all this crap, and then he has to make a decision about it. <laughs> but that was, you know, very different than 50 years ago when you had time to sit and sort of, you know, assess all of this stuff. But it also, I think, served a really, a really good method of setting up tension because it's all about creating reader expectation. And as M is reading this plan and thinking through what might happen this way or that way, and then he presents the plan to Bond and Bond you know, this is in Casino Real. Bond is like, well, what if I don't win at the casino, you know, and they talk through that. And it kind of sets up Bond as like, he's called because supposedly he's their best gambler, uh, which says things about him immediately, immediately as a character. 
but then you know they, they walk through all the things that could happen. So it's immediately setting up reader expectations and making a promise to the reader that we're going to get some kick-ass you know poker scenes or gambling scenes and some cool stuff like that is going to happen. I would I would recommend it. I mean, obviously, I've talked about these books much more than I've talked about any other book on this podcast. I think, <laughs> especially from Russia with Love. I think if you're feeling any Soviet nostalgia right now because it immediately makes me want to go read Tom Clancy again. Like I want to read uh, Hunt for Red October. I love that book. I love the opening of Hunt Hunt for Red October where it really digs into some Soviet uh, geopolitics that at the time I had never thought of. And also the effects of like black market operations on government and things like that. It's, it's a quick read and they're actually pretty inexpensive. You know, if you, you, obviously you can find used copies anywhere, but you can pick up the eBooks on Amazon for, for cheap. In fact, I think they're even in Kindle Unlimited, which is another kind of interesting thing about it. In fact, I think they are. Because Casino Real, I was listening to using the Kindle Unlimited audio feature that like transfers it over to Audible, even though I, I bought from Russia with Love and Audible. So yeah, I think they're, I think they're interesting. And what another thing that kind of led me down this path, actually, is I, I have Josh Hayes to blame for this because I, in reading Edge of Valor, it really got me thinking about Tom Clancy <laughs> and, and uh, you know, this sort of military espionage focused, you know, more of like a, like a military based, you know, NCIS kind of thing where you have an incident that then is being investigated from a military perspective. And it gives you the opportunity to insert all these kind of cool battle scenes in as well as an investigation and creates tension between those two things, which I think Josh did a really good job of. But I, you know, other places that I had read that was Tom Clancy and and uh, also John Le Carre, or like I'm probably not pronouncing his name right, but uh, uh, Russia House. I read, in fact, I don't remember a lot about that book. I grabbed some copies of those that are on their way because I'd like to reread them. And uh, I don't know why I'm I feel attracted to this right now, but I feel also feel like there might be like there's an opportunity there. I hear a lot of writers talking about thrillers and doing really well with thrillers right now. And while I wouldn't say that a thriller is anything I like to read I do love espionage (laughs) and so and I do have quite a bit of knowledge of Soviet tactics and at least tactical operations because I spent a lot of time studying that in the captain's career course when I went through that which was kind of ridiculous because we immediately deployed uh, to Iraq and didn't use any of those things that we learned but that's what we did you know when I went through ROTC it was all small unit tactics from Vietnam and then the captain's career course was all you know memorizing Soviet troop strengths when the Soviet Union had been collapsed for 10 years at that point but anyway I I digress so I would definitely recommend checking those out uh, from Russia with Love or Casino Real by Ian Fleming other things that happened last week I finished Training Run which is the tentative title that I ended up with for my Nova Blue novel and turned that in and while that's uh, first draft, I really didn't go through it again too much because I'd like to get some feedback. Um, I'm feeling pretty good about the book and I would be excited to do a sequel. I, I could really see, I tried to set things up so that it could almost be kind of an ongoing thing. I was thinking the whole time of like uh, Dresden, you know, Jim Butcher's uh, series where it could kind of be a, you know, you create a, a milieu, a world full of characters and then you can do different things with the characters in each book. But I have an idea of an arc for at least an initial trilogy. So we'll see what happens. If they don't end up wanting it, then I've already kind of talked with Mal Cooper about potentially uh, publishing something with Wooden Pen Press, and we can see see where that goes. So there's some options there. And immediately had to turn my attention to The Spreading Fire, which is my next book with Aeon 14. And 
the outlining is done. And for the outlining this time, I did kind of a thing where I, I have moved back to Scrivener. I'll need to copy whatever I write into Word because that's the template that we use. But I started out with, you know, in Scrivener you can make folders and folders are, then become your chapters and each folder you insert uh, text documents which are your scenes. And so I worked from the big piece like, okay, it always starts with a word count for me. I know that, you know, I'm gonna shoot for 60,000 words. I wanna do chapters of, you know, 5,000 words each. And each one will have five uh, scenes in it. It can even break it, break it down further than that because I think the average scene is about 500 words. But that's where I basically, you know, drill down from there. And then using Scrivener, like you can, you can kind of write headers in there for a description of what's gonna happen in the chapter. And so I basically just worked from like broad strokes all the way down to the scene level of what's gonna happen. And then I went back through and did something I haven't done before where I really, because I re actually what, what happened was I realized I had not addressed some character stuff from book one. So listed all the characters, where they were, and then what needs to happen in the book as far as their arc, and then made sure that I had addressed that uh, in, each, in the scenes so, so that I had enough scenes for each character. Um, and then also places where I wanted to get like kind of smash characters against each other so I could create conflict there. And then what arc I want, uh, you know, starting point and end point for the characters. Um, and so it's really helped to like, it immediately started creating, you know, I had an idea, I have always had a really strong plot concept for this book, but it immediately just started like laying everything into place as far as how the book needed to work. Um, and so I'm, I'm just ready to, ready to start writing on that. So I'm shooting for 60,000 words. I actually don't have a lot of time to get this done. I've got about three weeks. <laughs> We're doing a family thing this weekend, so I'm not really gonna be able to write this weekend, I don't think. But, you know, I'm in a place where I need to write 3,000 words a day to be able to get this done on deadline with probably some big days at the end. But that's how it usually goes for me. Like the beginning is always the hardest part and then pushing through to the end. Uh, the Alien 14 books, I have a much stronger, it's easier to write the end because I know where they need to go. Um, the Nova Blue book, I didn't know how it was going to end. So that really kind of like fought me for a while. I wrote an additional 10,000 words, you know, beyond what I had expected to write to just set things up and try and um, have the character in a place where it could either end there or it could go on to another story possibly. So um, yeah, I'll keep you posted on that and on the what word counts are and whatnot. I've kind of been haven't been as focused on daily word counts for the last month, but I need to jump back into that so I can I can reach my goals to get that that story done. And goals for next time, uh, basically write 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 write. Um, I'll keep you posted. But the other thing I would like to do is I have the opportunity to submit an idea for a class. So the class that I had done on podcasting for the local uh, writing nonprofit, uh, they were really happy with the class, so they invited me to submit for another class idea. And it's interesting because there's just a lot of freedom with it. So, I mean, she even threw out if I wanted to do like, you know, multiple weeks, which the class idea I have is actually to talk about income streams for authors, because I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. There are multiple ways you could potentially monetize your writing. And it's all about audience building. And I really like being able to talk about audience building as, a, as you write, you know, who are you gonna to sell to, right? And and a lot of people just don't even think about it, but they also get, I think if you talk about marketing sometimes, like marketing seems really obtuse, like 
okay, I'm going to run Facebook ads. Well, who do I run them to? I don't know. Well, if you focus on audience and you know who is who you're writing for and who is reading your work and you also know who is not your audience, well, then it's a lot easier to figure out how to market to those people and how to reach those people. You know, if you're writing a book on distilling, then you know that you probably want to go to a distilling festival. You know, that those are those are your people. You're not necessarily going to find your people on, you may find them on Amazon, but you know what I'm saying. Like you want to find your audience and your audience is probably not winemakers. It could be winemakers. There could be some overlap, but maybe not, you know. So, so I'm excited to, to do a class on that and I, I feel it could be really helpful for folks. And so I'm just thinking three hours, but I need to get that written. And I've had the form to send it in for quite some time and haven't done it. But I would say that if you have an opportunity to teach a class, do it. It's not your expertise that makes the class matter. I mean, obviously you need to kind of know what you're talking about, but you can research those things. Like there's information out there. It's bringing people together to talk about something, to motivate them, to start the ball rolling on something they they may have wanted to do for a long time. But, you know, there's a class I took on marketing with a person I know had done a lot of marketing in their career, but it's not even their primary job. But the things they taught in that class and gave me ideas to move away, you know, leave that class and do more research. I think about that all the time. It was incredibly helpful for me. So I would recommend anybody, if you have the opportunity to do it, do it. And you got to start somewhere. So jump in if you have the opportunity. So I'll keep you posted on that as well and what the timeline could look like. Other things that are coming up that I haven't talked a lot about is I'm going to be going to the Sci-Fi Seattle weekend, Writers Weekend that Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon are putting on. Those are the two guys that do the Career Author Podcast, which if you're not listening to, I would definitely recommend that. And this one was on the West Coast, so I'm excited to check it out. And it's a group with a group of writers that I actually have no, have never met them before. Uh, in fact, I think they seem to be writing like similar stuff to me. So, but it's going to be at the Pop Museum, the Pop Culture Museum in Seattle, right near the Space Needle, and should be a fun kind of getaway. I haven't had an actual like vacation in a long time, so. But that's coming up in September, so it's still a, a month or, or so away. But I'm getting more and more excited about it. Okay, well, thank you for listening. I really appreciate you checking in. And until next time, uh, happy writing. If you got any questions, please uh, feel free to shoot me an email, james at jamesaron.net. I will talk to you next time. Bye.